Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Native child advocates are speaking out about a child custody case in Alaska. It involves a child whose mother was murdered by the father, but now, years later, the child remains in the care of an unrelated woman appointed guardian by the father and his family. It's a case that involves tribal courts and even a social media campaign. We'll hear about that and also learn about some of the challenges remaining for placing Native foster children even after the U.S. Supreme Court gave a big boost to the Indian Child Welfare Act. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Grand Gateway Hotel in Rapid City, South Dakota, already embroiled in legal battles, now faces yet another discrimination lawsuit. It's the latest development since the business and its policies were vaulted into national attention last summer. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's C.J. Keene reports. The hotel has been entrenched in legal battles since ownership last year posted to social media their intentions to, quote, ban any native from property, leading to months of protests and multiple lawsuits. Those properties include the Grand Gateway Hotel and Cheers Lounge in Rapid City. The latest suit, from a Wisconsin family, alleges they were denied service at the hotel based on the race of a native family member. Court documents say Jessica White, who is Caucasian, was not bothered as she attempted to check into the hotel on vacation this August. Her husband, Ryan, who is native, unloaded their car and entered the lobby second. The lawsuit alleges the employee abruptly denied the couple service or honored the booking after Ryan entered. After contacting Travelocity, the family confirmed three rooms reserved at the hotel. Despite the Travelocity representative confirming the booking and speaking to hotel staff, the employee still refused the family the rooms. At this point, the employee of the hotel reportedly told the Travelocity representative, who spoke with an accent, to quote, speak English, which the lawsuit alleges reinforced the racial nature of the incident. Further, the family says the employee told Ryan to leave the lobby, called for security, and told security to bring backup before then telling Jessica he would call dispatch. Feeling threatened for the safety of himself and his children, Ryan White then left the hotel. The lawsuit alleges the White family was not refused service on plausible basis and instead were the victims of unlawful discrimination, which fits into a larger pattern for the business. The suit asks for the courts to declare the hotel's conduct unlawful and for the family to be reimbursed for their attorney fees and awarded damages at trial. Owner Connie Urie has already been convicted of two counts of simple assault for an incident in May, which saw her spray cleaner at protesters. Representatives from the hotel did not return request for comment. For National Native News, I'm C.J. Keene in Rapid City. Milwaukee County signed a Rights of Nature resolution last week, becoming the first in Wisconsin to endorse the indigenous legal movement. Lena Tran of Station WUWM has more. The resolution was signed steps from the Menominee River which plays a central role in the Menominee Indian tribe of Wisconsin's creation story. Now, the county recognizes the water's right to thrive. Here's Milwaukee County Executive David Crowley. And it's exactly why we're here today, to state clearly and unequivocally that Milwaukee County land and waterways deserves to be protected and maintained to be healthy, robust, and resilient. Guy Ryder is a Menominee citizen and leads the movement in the state. He likened the moment to the moon landing. This is one step for man and then a huge step for, for our environment. And that's the kind of the way 
I think about it because uh, it's been a very long time that we've been able to, to think of our environment as a part of us, as not something that's external, but it is internal. The resolution doesn't have the teeth of legal penalties, but organizers hope it inspires communities across the state to take similar steps. Megan Keller is a member of the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. She said the resolution is an important tool. So I feel like having this legal framework to stand on will help further that cause, but also really prevent people from being like traumatized and punished for standing up for our mother. She said Indigenous women especially have been criminalized for protecting water in the Great Lakes. Rights of nature gives them legs to stand on. For National Native News, I'm Lena Tran in Milwaukee. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Drummond Woodsum, a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A drawn-out child custody case in Alaska is testing the limits of tribal sovereignty. While not specifically falling under the Indian Child Welfare Act, the case involves a Native child and a non-Native guardian who is fighting a tribal court order. The details of the case also have Native women's advocates concerned. Some have taken to social media to try to raise the public's awareness. The story begins when the father of the child called Chanel murdered the girl's mother. Before his arrest, he signed over power of attorney to a non-Native woman. A tribal court has since ruled Chanel belongs with her maternal grandmother. The current guardian is fighting that decision. It's a custody case that falls outside of the Indian Child Welfare Act, but it involves tribal jurisdiction and identity. Today on our show, we'll speak with some advocates and Native legal experts about the case. We'll also discuss how the Indian Child Welfare Act is being enforced. Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. We have five guests on our show today. Joining us first from Wasilla, Alaska is Antonia Comac. She is the best friend of baby Chanel's mother, the late Kristen Huntington. She is a Nupiak from the native village of Shungnak. Antonia, thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Speaking with us from Sacramento, California, is Bossy Upsell. She is a student at Sacramento State University and a social media influencer. She is Anupiak from the native village of Koyuk. Bossy, welcome to you as well. Good morning. Joining us from Portland, Oregon, is Simona Bear Cub. She is an indigenous advocate. She's also a citizen of the Fort Peck. Assiniboine and Sioux Tribes. Hi, Simona. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. 
Joining us from Anchorage, Alaska is Sydney Tarswell. She is a staff attorney for the Native American Rights Fund, NARF. Hello, Sydney. Welcome to you, too. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. And joining us from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and rounding out our panel today is Matthew Fletcher. He's a law professor at the University of Michigan Law School and an author of the Turtle Talk blog. He is of the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians. Hello, Matthew. Welcome back to NAC. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. Let's go ahead and get our conversation started now. This is a, a case that's really getting a lot of attention here in recent weeks. And Antonia, please start us off. Uh, what prompted you to get involved in this case? I know you have a, a close relationship with uh, Baby Chanel's mother. Um, yes, Kristen was my best friend <clears throat> since about elementary school. And when she died in 2020, I sort of advocated for her case, um, expecting that Chanel would eventually return to her grandmother. And the longer it went on, I I started to notice what was happening, and that's when I spoke up um, publicly about it. And where are we in the process right now? Um, what's the status? I know that there have been some some rulings, but uh, where is baby Chanel right now? Do you know? Right now, she is in Fairbanks with that family. Um, her grandmother has been awarded custody twice, once in December 2022 and then again in August of 2023. Um, she's since tried to go pick her up in Fairbanks and, um, Nikki Richmond has refused to hand her over. So right now we're still waiting on the next hearing, which is on November 17th, 16th. I'm sorry. Okay. And Antonio, what are you doing right now in terms of advocacy, uh, for your friend's daughter? Um, so we started a social media campaign a few months ago. It, it mostly started in December, and I've since kind of gathered a team of advocates from all over. Um, we've started a website, we have several social media sites, and we just raise awareness every time we get some new information. And what are you hearing? What is the overall response from all these people that are following you on social? Um, we've gotten a great response from everybody. Everybody is super supportive. Um, everybody believes that she needs to be with her family within her culture. I haven't heard people say otherwise. Okay. And what, what more can you tell us about the family that currently has, has custody? Uh, they've been referred to as a friend of, of the father of baby Chanel. What, what more do you know? Um, so I don't know them personally. I've only seen things that I've saw on social media and in the court filings, but from what I know and what I've heard, they were strangers to Eric Rustad um, before they got custody of Chanel. Um, they've been referred to as friends in the court filings, which I'm sure they're friendly now. Um, that That's all I know about them, really. Okay. Yeah, because I think a lot of people are just wondering, like, what is that connection? Why did this family uh, get involved here? Just a, a really intriguing case and... Uh, Appreciate you, Antonia, coming on uh, to get us started here. And, and Bossy, I want to go ahead and bring you into the conversation now. And I know that you don't have a direct relationship with anyone involved in the case, but you've devoted a significant amount of time to talk about this issue on social media. What got you involved? I got involved with the case by seeing Nikki Richmond's public post on Facebook. 
um, the Inupiaq community, we keep in contact one way or another a lot of the times. And that's how I heard about it. And what's and been I got uh, involved because I am yeah. Sorry. Okay. All right. And um what's been the role so far of, of the social media that uh you're facilitating? What I'm doing is I'm presenting facts of the case. I post update videos about what's going on to keep other people aware. And I also put in my own theories on what I think is happening. I try to present it in a thoughtful way that other people can understand easily. Okay. And how effective do you think your efforts have been in terms of just raising awareness and generating any kind of positive direction for the case? I'm not entirely sure how effective I've been. I know that we have got a lot more people involved just by talking about the case on social media. Now, Bossy, some people might say, look, this is a child custody case. Uh, why should the public weigh in on this type of issue? What's your response when you hear that? So a lot of people don't know who the Inupiaq are, um, but our story is similar to other stories of tribal nations where we've had our cultures and languages stripped from us through our parents and grandparents being put into native boarding schools. Um, those of us that were able to avoid complete assimilation have had our children taken away from us for not adhering to European standards of living. So I feel like this resonates with a lot of people, right? Like especially native peoples across the country. And it's an important story that we keep in mind because of ICWA just being reaffirmed earlier this year. Now, Bossy, I know TikTok is uh, is your main social media platform, and you had a big following even before you got involved with this. And about how many followers do you have now? And um, how important is that for people such as yourself uh, and others, perhaps, to just you know get involved on a on a social media level? So I wouldn't say I have a very big following. I'm just under a hundred thousand. Um, I would say it's an okay, like, um, it's it's a good amount of following. Um, I started my platform by um, talking about me reclaiming my culture. Um, I started my platform when I was starting taking a new back classes at University of Alaska Fairbanks, and I just started building up from there. So a lot of my followers are Native, and I, I've connected with multiple different nations across the country on native TikTok, and that's how it started. All right. Antonia, I want to go back to you. Um, do you think there's any dangers in, in talking about this case and specifically talking so much about baby Chanel publicly and even putting messages out there on social media? Could that in any way hurt this custody case and, uh, and baby Chanel's uh, grandmother who's fighting so hard for to bring her granddaughter to her home? Um, I personally don't believe it hurts the case at all, but I have heard otherwise from um, the lawyers, which is kind of their job to keep things quiet. Um, the way I see it, my advocacy and my bringing it to the public light has helped Arlene more because she now has more support 
And that doesn't allow them to keep dragging it on when nobody knows about it. And that mm-hmm. is my point of view. Okay. And tell us more about uh, baby Chanel's grandma. I mean, how's she holding up through all of this right now? Um, so Arlene's been in my life for a very long time, obviously. Um, her, she's the mother of my best friend who is now deceased. But um, she's holding up as well as you could be, I suppose. You know, this is a very stressful situation to go through after losing your child and now your grandchild. Um she's just really hoping and praying for the day that Chanel is back in her life and then they can begin to heal together. All right. Well, this is a, a really pressing issue that we're covering here on Native America Calling today. And, and we're going to hear from some legal experts a little bit later uh, about this issue from a legal standpoint. Uh, right now we're talking with Antonia Comac and also we're talking with Bossy upsell and they're sharing their connection to the case uh, their involvement with social media anybody from alaska who has familiarity with this case right now involving baby chanel we'd sure like to hear your thoughts and our phone lines are open 1-800-996-2848 that's our number to the studio we'll get you through we'll get your comments on the air let us know what you think 1-800-996-2848 you can also connect with us via social media we've got facebook We've got Instagram. Those channels are going, so feel free to engage with us on those channels as well. And uh, we will take a short break, but we're going to be back, and we're going to talk a lot more about this issue. Pervasive low salmon runs in some parts of Alaska are increasing pressure for better subsistence fishing management. Recently, the Alaska Federation of Natives joined in a lawsuit over subsistence rights for Alaska Natives. We'll hear about the lawsuit and what's driving it. That's on the next Native America Calling. The Association on American Indian Affairs welcomes all to Tribal Museums Day, December 2nd through the 10th. Tribal museums may offer no-cost or reduced admission, art markets, and cultural demonstrations. Tribal Museums Day honors Native nations as the experts of their diverse cultures. A map of tribal museums and more is available at indian-affairs.org slash tribalmuseumsday. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. We're talking about a custody case involving a native child in Alaska. We're also talking about the challenges that come with enforcing the Indian Child Welfare Act or ICWA. Join this conversation with your comments and questions by calling 1-800-996-2848. Our phone lines are open, 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'm going to go ahead and bring Simona Bear Cub into the conversation now. She is an indigenous advocate, a citizen of the Fort Peck Assiniboine and Sioux tribes. And Simona, thank you again for joining us. And like uh, Bossy, you don't have a direct connection to this case, but let's go ahead and start with your own story. You were a foster child in the early 1980s. Do you see any parallels between your own personal history and what's unfolding right now in Alaska? Absolutely. Um, it's my passion. It's what I um, am fighting for so it doesn't happen to any other children. It was, uh, was implemented in 78, so I went into foster care in 83. So, it, you know, it's framework and all the 
kinks and bugs hadn't been worked out yet. So um, I slipped through the cracks. I slipped through the cracks. And I had, as an adult, I'm now scrambling, trying to reconnect and um, take what, take back what was taken from me. And how's that going for you? How's it working? Oh, it's difficult, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really mm-hmm. is. I'm in Oregon, so I have access to the Oregon tribes and their teachings and what they share with me, but I don't have access to my own people, which is Fort Peck in Montana. Now, you mentioned slipping Luckily, through the cracks. Okay. Well, tell us, yeah. you, you said slip through the cracks. How so? What exactly happened? Um, I was trafficked. Um, and I always tell everybody I don't mince words with that. If they believe that foster care is anything different, they're wrong. I mean, there's a long historical pattern of trafficking children. And um, foster care is just an extension of the boarding school era. They trafficked me. They trafficked many of the um, kids I grew up with. Mm-hmm. So traffic. I, um, I think I stopped counting. Oh, I stopped okay. counting after twenty-five homes. Wow! Wow! And how old were you when this first occurred? I. I was three. I was three. I was taken into the system at three um, from Oregon, and then transported to California, and then from California, I was transported to my reservation. And I lived there for a little bit, and then um, I was taken out by a family member, brought back to California, and then just back in the system all over again. Um, Till my 18th birthday, where they were like, no living skills, but here's your bags. Good luck. Okay. Well, Simona, what got you involved in in the Chanel case? Um, I saw Bossy's um, videos, and then I saw a post on Instagram, and I was like, I want in. I want to help. I want to do anything I can because like I said, this is my passion. It's, I don't want this happening to any other children and it continues to happen. Mm -hmm. And what do you hope to accomplish when it, when it comes to to the Chanel case? Because this isn't an equa case, like, you know, what you're dealing with on a personal level. Oh, uh, social services is the boogeyman to me. They are, they've always been the boogeyman to me. And, um, what I hope to accomplish is to give our, our people back, our voices, learn different ways to fight back and, and, and keep our children safe, you know. Um, and I want Chanel home with her family, with her grandma, where, where she belongs, you know, not, not have her culture and things that can't be replicated um, stolen from her. Mm-hmm. And what kind of activities are, are you involved with uh, to make that happen, to advocate on behalf of baby Chanel? Oh, I'm part of the social media campaign. I've also held rallies here in Portland, um, bringing, um, you know, social awareness to the cause. A lot of people weren't aware. And it's absolutely (laughs) amazing that people still don't understand what ICWA means, what it stands for. Um, They hadn't heard about the Chanel case. Um, Mostly it's just bringing awareness and to keep the fight going so that she doesn't slip through the cracks like I did. Like, uh, there were no eyes on me. There was nobody to keep me safe. And as long as they know that there's eyes on her, she's safer. Mm-hmm. And what are you hearing uh, from the people that you connect with, that you organize with? Uh, what's the feedback so far? It's good. We're getting positive uh, feedback. There's a lot more people involved, a lot more people who um, want, are wanting to know what's going on. Um, 
when there was okay. actual um, court case, people call in. There were actual um, people from everywhere calling in and listening, keeping eyes on the case, holding, um, you know, the systems accountable, saying that we're watching. And are you running into any resistance? Is there anybody saying, hey, you know what? I think uh, she's been with this family for four years, almost her whole life. She should stay there. Do you hear that? Yeah, we hear that, but um, I tell them my own story. I, it's not just being in a home that's deprived of your culture. It's, it's not helpful. Like I said, it can't be replicated. Like even here in Oregon, I'm learning from Oregon tribes, but it's not my same teachings. It's not my traditions. You just can't replicate it. We're not a monolith. Mm -hmm. All right. Bossy, I want to ask you the same question because you must um, have some pushback there on your social media channels. What do you say to people who, who don't agree with uh, removing baby Chanel from the home she's in right now? I haven't received a whole lot of pushback on my social media account. We'll get trolls every now and again, but just like Simona said, and you react, it is a culture that cannot be replicated no matter how hard prospective non-native adoptive parents try. So, because we're multifaceted, nuanced, and have deep historical ties to our culture. And no amount of superficial colonial love can supersede the necessity of culture to the Inupiaq life. So you'd be better off expecting a fish to live out of water, which is why it's imperative for our kids to stay with us. Well, thank you for, for these perspectives, and uh, this really helps frame our conversation. I want to go ahead and bring in one of our legal experts now. Let's start with Sydney Tarswell, and she is a staff attorney for the Native American Rights Fund. She's up in Anchorage, Alaska. And, and Sydney, thank you again for joining us. And um, I, I just got to note that we need to be more mindful of how we refer to this case. And it's not so much of a custody case as it is a child protection case. Can you explain that in more detail for us? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think um, custody its uh, custody is um, a, a word that's used broadly and to cover a, a lot of different types of cases. And I think when you start to talk about cases where uh, ICWA may be implicated, um, using custody can get a little bit confusing because a lot of people, when they hear the word custody, think of sort of a parent versus parent custody battle. And that is actually one of the areas that ICWA does not cover. Um, this case that we're talking about is not an ICWA case, so that specific distinction isn't as important here. Um, but I do think what's important is to think about this case and the cases that ICWA covers as child protection cases. So when you're talking about state court cases, those are cases where you know the state has usually gotten involved to um, uh, take a child who the state believes is in danger, often away from their family. Uh, there's other things that happen in the state child protection system too. Um, and then there's also tribal court child protection cases. Um, so the, the case that's being discussed today is a tribal court child protection case. Okay, thanks for that clarification. And I know you can't talk about specific details of the case, but there is this major element of, of tribal jurisdiction and specifically uh, someone not recognizing the validity of a tribal court order. So tell us, how much weight do tribal court orders have in the state of Alaska? Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, I'm not going to talk about the, the details of this case because um, we, the Native American Rights Fund, has been involved in this case a little bit. So, But I can talk generally about um, how ICWA really does 
um, respect tribal jurisdiction, and ICWA demands that state courts respect tribal jurisdiction. So ICWA requires state courts to provide full faith and credit to tribal court orders um, about these child, child protection uh, matters. Um, and the state of Alaska has a process for, for how a tribe can get their orders recognized and enforced. Uh, it's written into the Child in Need of Aid rules in Alaska. Um, so there's, there's supposed to be sort of a government-to-government, um, -government, full faith and credit, respect of tribal court orders. Um, things get a little bit difficult, though, uh, because there are parts of those Child in Need of Aid rules that allow a state court to sort of do a, a very narrow review of the tribal court order um, to look at things like, did this tribal court um, have jurisdiction when it issued this order? Did the tribal court provide kind of basic due process? Um, and so I think where things get tricky sometimes is folks will come into court and really argue those points. They'll try to argue that the tribal court didn't have jurisdiction, or they'll try to argue that uh, the tribal court didn't provide due process. Um, and I think sometimes Western and colonial courts really, I don't want to say just courts, folks that are trained in Western colonial legal systems sometimes think that if the tribal court didn't do things in a way that looks exactly like that Western colonial system, then somehow it wasn't fair. Um, and so I think there's, there's really some real room for folks in the Western system to learn about tribal systems um, and to provide the respect that they should be providing to tribal court orders and tribal court actions. Okay. Now, Sydney, uh, the Alaska Child Protection Law is known as uh, Child in Need of Aid. It's pronounced CHINA. And um, how does that differentiate between child protection laws in other states where there are significant Native American populations? New Mexico, Arizona, Montana, South Dakota, for example. Oh, good question. And I actually, um, I've practiced in Alaska China cases. I haven't practiced in those other states. So I can't give you a um, details about how they uh, how they differ. I can say that you know ICWA is a, a federal law, a national law, and so ICWA applies across the board. Um, and sometimes where things get complicated is how ICWA interacts with those different state systems and how ICWA gets applied um, sometimes differently in those state systems. So ICWA is supposed to be uniform, supposed to be applied uniformly. Um, there were some regulations passed somewhat recently trying to. Uh, increase the uniformity of the way that ICWA is applied, but I think you're right. I think there are still differences state to state. Okay. Let's bring Matthew Fletcher into our conversation. He's a law professor at the University of Michigan. And Matthew, again, to repeat, the case that we're discussing today, it is a child protection case. It does not fall under the aegis of ICWA, but can you help us understand a little bit better? When does ICWA kick in and when did when does it not kick in when we're talking about issues like this with native children? Normally, ICWA kicks in when you have a state court proceeding involving a child welfare matter or an adoption matter. And so usually it comes in when there is the removal of a child from a native home um, involuntarily, or uh, that leads potentially to foster care or an uh, potential adoption placement, or even if it's uh, in, uh, or even if it's voluntary, so the child voluntarily is uh, placed for adoption. And uh, these are, again, state court proceedings. ICWA does not apply to tribal courts. And so when you have a proceeding like this that's in tribal court, the Indian Child Welfare Act does not apply to the, to the tribe, the tribal court. 
um, to the extent that there is any kind of state court activity going on in this case, and there was a while back, there, um, the Indian Child Welfare Act def definitely would kick in that. All right. Now, in this case we're talking about today, uh, a tribal court has issued a, a ruling and a state court has affirmed that ruling. So shouldn't that be the end of it? Why is this keep, what is this going on? Yeah, my reading of this case is that you have somebody who has probably been uh, um, persuaded or uh, led on to believe that the Indian Child Welfare Act is somehow invalid in some respects or that the tribal proceeding here is invalid. Um, it most certainly is uh, not. That's not the case. Uh, but they're, you know, they're playing with uh, sort of these, uh, I guess you could call them jurisdictional loopholes. You know, normally when you have a jurisdiction to jurisdiction dispute uh, or competing claims to jurisdiction between courts, the United States Constitution says, well, each court, the state or federal court has to give respect to the other. Um, and then that's usually the end of the story. So it, it might mean that if you're here in Michigan and the cases in Alaska, the Michigan court will issue an order and the Alaska court, the Alaska sheriffs, they will enforce it um, in, in Alaska. And where, what the jurisdictional problem that seems to be here is that the state of Alaska um, either has not been asked or has not been, uh, or, or has not decided to comply with the court order. And so you have private party that sort of is playing this jurisdictional game, this loophole game where they kind of know that at least for a little while, they're not going the tribal court order hasn't yet been enforced. Um, it's not like the tribal police department can go off the reservation and go take the child. Um, and so if the, the party that, you know, these non-Indian foster parents don't want to give up the child, um, the only way to do that is to use the power of the state to do that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's kind of where we are, it sounds like. And this is one of those issues that, that gets uh, Native people really riled up, and, and it gets people worried because you, you just question, you know, the strength and the validity of tribal courts. And, and, you know, we hear so many times of, you know, these questions of jurisdiction and, and who should be involved, and, and it just gets people really riled up and really concerned. And I want to also ask you, Matthew, I mean, for this family, this family that now has custody of this child. I mean, is there any danger for them, you know, challenging this tribal court order if in the end the, the case is ultimately decided uh, on, on behalf of the mother's family? Well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're going to face a lot of uh, potential legal challenges. Um, you know, we, we actually had a case not dissimilar to this. Um, I, almost, I almost hesitate to bring it up, but um, the postscript Sort of the epilogue to the adoptive couple versus baby girl case was a moment where the Cherokee dad in that case, after the Supreme Court opinion, um, was reluctant to turn um, his daughter over to the non-Indian family. And um, the governor of the state of Oklahoma immediately issued an arrest warrant. And that's what probably should happen in this case uh, with the Alaska family. And, uh, you know, what we may be seeing now and uh, sadly probably will see is the state of Alaska doing little to nothing to um, effectuate this very valid court order to which um, the state of Alaska owes full faith and credit without question. And uh, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. I'm not sure if there is going to be law enforcement or police presence, but that is the end game ultimately. And uh, the real question is, will Alaska step up to its obligations? And um, 
you know, long term, I mean, if Alaska chooses not to, there are going to be public officials that may be subject to a civil rights complaint from people at the from the family, um, mm-hmm. the tribal family. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to take another break here, but um, interesting conversation, and especially with regard to cases falling through the cracks and uh, specifically as they apply to the Indian Child Welfare Act. And uh, if you're somebody listening right now who has a story to tell with regard to an ICWA case falling through the cracks or perhaps any type of child protection case that uh, you've experienced personally and uh, how the impact was in your community or your family, our phone lines are open and we are always, always uh, looking forward to your call. So one 800 nine nine six two eight four eight that's our number here at the studio give us a call we're standing by native american made gifts at ho-chunk inc's sweetgrass trading co include food beauty and wellness items from across turtle island christmas delivery available for orders placed by december 18th at sweetgrasstradingco.com ho-chunk inc supports this show are you a welder for over 40 years, D&R Tank, who support this show, have provided tanks and tank maintenance to communities throughout the Southwest and is currently hiring experienced welders. Info at 505-873-1101. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There's still time to join this conversation about ICWA and this child protection case in Alaska. Our number to the studio, one 800 996 28 We've got a couple of legal experts on our show right now, Matthew Fletcher at the University of Michigan and Sydney Tarswell, who is in Anchorage, and she is with the Native American Rights Fund. And Matthew, um, can you share any similar cases uh, to what is happening right now in Alaska with Baby Chanel? I understand there's a a case in California, the Baby Lexi case. Is that a a good parallel case to, to cite? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, basically what you have is a, a foster family that has been ordered by a court. In that case, it was the court of the state of California to turn a child over to a biological relative um, of the child uh, in accordance with the Indian Child Welfare Act. And um, I, I, my sense is, my recollection of that case is that um, the foster family in that case didn't directly uh, resist the order. What they did was they filed an appeal, which is uh, they have some sort of standing to do that in California, but not they would not have that standing in Alaska. The other thing that that family did, is my understanding, is that they recorded, um, videotaped the child over repeatedly throughout the course of pretty much every day with an eye towards creating a, a record, like for YouTube purposes of showing, in their view, um, the, the um, impact on the child and what the impact on their family is going to be. And uh, it, they, the appeals kept happening over and over again, and it was extremely frustrating because the, the trial court, the, the family court in California kept messing up. And uh, the Court of Appeals in California, we know an appeal takes a year, year and a half, would tell the trial court to go do it again correctly. Um, and it just kept going on for years and years. And by the time uh, the case finally concluded the appeals, you know, the family was all ready to go with a video that they played on YouTube that received massive amounts of hits indicating, um, sort of taping this child's, um, you know, life uh, and the, the transition, uh, the, the traumatic moment that they uh, 
they left their home and went and, you know, their foster home and went back to their biological relatives. And, uh, you know, it was, it was played for, you know, emotionally, emotionally potent uh, efforts and it was really devastating. Um, definitely if I was that child and that child grows up, there's going to be, um, hell to pay because that child's privacy rights were certainly, um, violated in that case in a really inappropriate way. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there are some parallels. There are certainly, um, people who will go to great lengths to resist, um, uh, valid court orders from tribal courts and Indian Child Welfare Act type orders. Okay. And what it also underscores is that these social media campaigns, uh, they can be used by, by both sides in a case such as this. And as you share that this family was, apparently somebody was showing videos of, of this young child and the family and the interaction and things like that, which were obviously uh, effective at swaying certain people. And I, I want to go back to Sydney now, because Sydney, earlier I asked uh, Bossy and I asked Simona about, you know, are there any risks of... Um, of sharing some of this information publicly. And what's your thought with regard to social media? Do you worry at all or do people need to be kind of cautious about the risk of misinformation being spread about this specific case in Alaska on social media? Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I do. I mean, and as they pointed out, you know, I'm a lawyer and so caution is, is part of my, my training and my nature probably. Um, but I, I do have some worries, both about uh, kind of the privacy that that um, Dr. Fletcher was just raising. You know, this is this is a little kid. This is a little kid whose um, life, to some extent, is going to be all over the internet um, for forever. Um, and these are, you know, the, the tribal court proceedings are confidential. The state court proceedings at this point, I believe, are closed. And so the the courts are trying to keep this child's privacy. But I do worry about um, folks sort of spreading some of the details about her life. Um, and I don't want to, you know, I, I really kind of appreciate people's fire and passion and activism. Um, I really appreciate, you know, Ms. Bear Cub's story. And so I, I don't want to be saying, you know, like, uh, that, that shouldn't happen, that shouldn't be out there, that shouldn't be public. Um, but I do, I do worry about misinformation being spread. I mean, I think about this particular case, for example, I think there's been some confusion. I think there are folks that think it's an ICWA case, meaning a, you know, a state court child protection case where ICWA would apply directly. Um, that's not the case in, in this Alaska case that's been getting a lot of attention. Um, and I think sometimes having details out there that are incorrect can both um, uh, like fire up the activism, sometimes maybe in the wrong direction or kind of pointed at the wrong institution. Or um, And sometimes I think they're, they're there are times when it can come back and actually sort of harm the the case itself. You know, if um, uh, judges, for example, are getting misinformation through the public, um, things can get just confused and tangled. And um, so I, I do worry about that too. But I'd say that maybe the primary concern is protecting this child's privacy. Thank you, Sydney. Antonia, I want to bring you back to the conversation now. Obviously, there is a privacy risk uh, with regard to to some of this awareness that you and the others are doing, but there's also power in public awareness at what appears to be an injustice. So ultimately, Antonia, what do you hope comes of your involvement with this case? Um, My ultimate goal is obviously to bring Chanel home. Um, The second thing that we wanted to do was try to passed laws in Alaska and all over the U.S. to where parental rights are automatically terminated when one parent murders the other. Um, That's something Arlene and I had talked about before, 
because we just want to protect other families from all of this pain that she is going through. Um, so those are the two things that I hope to gain from this. Okay. And Antonia, I also want to ask you, because we've heard, uh, you, know, you know, Matthew said earlier, and also Sydney, that, that this child's going to grow up. Right, and this is this is close to you. This is personal. This is the the daughter of, of your good friend, and and someday she will grow up. And here, you know, we, we've got a whole show. We've got legal experts weighing in, and we've got activists all over the country who are involved. But but she's living this life. This is her life, and, and at some point she will be older, and she'll understand this. Right now, she probably doesn't even understand half of what's going on. Maybe not even that. But at some point, she's going to grow up, and she's going to reflect back, and she's going to know that this is her personal history. What do you want her to understand about what's happening right now for when she you grows know, up? I thought about this for a very long time before I posted publicly. And I want to tell you, it was a very, very long time that I saw their post. And it made me very sad because, um, you know, I did think about her growing up and seeing all of these things about her online. But I figured, you know, the the pros out outweigh the cons because she's going to see that the entire country and the world was fighting for her to go home to her family, to go home to her grandmother who's been fighting for her so hard. Um, And I think she'll appreciate that more. And the thing that people aren't considering is all of these pictures were taken from their public Facebooks. So these are things that they put out there themselves and nobody is talking about her privacy being violated when they were doing that themselves. You know, mm-hmm. it all started with them. Thank you, Antonia. Uh, Bossy, how about you? What are your hopes ultimately? Because, you know, I always think of cases like this. Ultimately, the goal for, for people and communities is to heal. Do you see a way for healing to occur here for this young child going forward? Absolutely. I definitely see a way for her to heal after all of this especially when she's reunited with her in Ubraft family. And I just want to say the post that I've made personally, I stick to the facts of the case that are available to me publicly. I don't know Chanel or her family personally. I just happen to be an Ubraft person who heard about this case from Nikki Richmond's public post. Thank you, Bossy. We're going to take a call now. Chanupa, who is listening on Keeley up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Hi, Chanupa. What are your thoughts on today's show? Hey, Sean, and to those girls that are fighting for these kids' rights, let me explain something to you. Here in South Dakota, Chanupa was asked to defend some tribes in Montana, okay? The Northern Blackfeet tribe and the Northern Cheyenne. And I went to them and, and defeated the, the state courts on hereditary kinship of our ancient way before ICWA had its foothold, okay? And there's a way to do that. So the little girl that, that, that Sean was talking about, how her emancipation from her family, she has to be reunited once and for all with family. Now, I disagree with uh, the Planned Parenthood of the removal of parental rights. That, that's all Caucasian, white man, so to speak. But when you violate them, this is what's going to happen, people. Meaning that the great mystery is going to punish you if you don't use that mm-hmm. understanding to protect them kids 
and reunite them with their families because the ultimate goal is the kinship with family and the bonding of the child with his mom and dad. Back to you, and thank you for taking my call, Sean. Love you, brother. Keep it up. All right. We love you too, Chanupa. And, you know, I'm going to just build on that because Chanupa mentions the importance of being with mother and father. But in this case, this is what's so bizarre here is that the father murdered the mother, this tragic, tragic crime. And Matthew, I, I, I want to ask you, I mean, from a legal perspective, because, you know, at what point are, are parental rights uh, no longer do they no longer apply to the father in a case like this? And is there any other precedent where a similar situation where a father murders, murders somebody, but, you know, gives custody to this child, their child to, to this third party. I mean, can we draw from any other cases uh, throughout native America that have any kind of precedent at all with this, with this current case? I'm sure there are. I mean, it, but the problem is that, you have to litigate that question. You have to go through the state law on on termination of parental rights. And um, you know what's weird is you know before ICWA it was super easy to terminate parental rights because states never gave due process to families. And now they do. And now even somebody who is a convicted murderer um, has due process rights to defend their um, their the termination of their parental rights, even though they. They may be a murderer, and so these mm -hmm. things have to be litigated, and it takes time, and you have to do it under state law for the most part. So is it fair to say that this is a loophole that's been enabled in part by ICWA, a, a law that was supposed to, to make things safer for, for Native children? It is now through a loophole this, this um, custody situation was able to occur? I guess you can call it that, but I think it was already there before ICWA. I mean, um, ICWA, pre, you know, protected um, parents from having the rights terminated summarily. And so I wouldn't call it an ICWA or a loophole. I would just say that everybody's entitled to due, due process rights. And when you only have one parent left, um, state law respects that. And what's weird is that, you know, under state law, traditionally, the Children are considered the property of the parents, and so that's why due process rights weren't really uh, respected because the the state accepted that parents, you know, effectively owned their child, mm -hmm. and uh, we're still this is sort of a legacy of that um, ancient tradition. Unfortunately, it's okay. totally different under indigenous principles where children are like supernatural creatures, you know, that are sort of independent. Uh. <laughs> That's a good analogy there, Matthew. Appreciate it. Sydney, I want to go back to you. Uh, we're going to wind down the show here. We've got a couple minutes left. But uh, any other uh, pertinent challenges that Alaska tribes and, and Native communities are facing with regard to implementation of ICWA? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, Alaska, unfortunately, like, like many states, you know, still has disproportionality numbers that are as bad or almost as bad as they were when ICWA was passed. And what I mean by disproportionality is that um, there are far more Alaska Native children in foster care in that state system um, than are a percentage of the population more broadly. So Alaska Native kids are getting swept up into the foster care system at, at really um, out of proportion rates. So those numbers are still really high and too many of those kids are, are being placed in you know, non-native, non-relative homes. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I think, you know, 
one of the reasons is when it when it kind of comes down to it in the state system, it's generally the people who are providing the services, the people who are providing the resources, um, the people who are making the decisions are generally not tribal members. And so you often have really different worldviews functioning, just like Dr. Fletcher kind of alluded to. Um, and so I think in, in terms of um, how to overcome that, I feel like there's always work, there's always advocacy being done to improve state systems to, you know, kind of hold them to their obligations under ICWA. But I also think, you know, that the tribes are under-resourced. Um, certainly, you know, the tribes, I think, in many places are the only parties in these child protection cases that don't automatically get a lawyer. Um, and so to fight for their rights in the state system, tribes have to somehow find a way to get legal representation. Um, state child protection systems, and I mean, not child protection, state uh, child uh, like support, um, family support systems, prevention systems don't have enough resources. Uh, tribal courts don't have enough resources. And then even when they do, when they're able to take on these cases themselves and work these cases themselves, we run into the problems that we were discussing earlier about states not necessarily respecting what they've done and their orders or being willing to enforce them. So I think all of those are barriers to getting to the place where we would ideally want to be, which is that, you know, children are, are safe and happy in their homes and the tribes are the one who are able to sort of um, step in when that's not the case and support the families and uh, make the decisions and the judicial decisions when necessary. So I think there's a lot there, um, but lots of barriers, unfortunately. All right. Thank you. And uh, Antonia, quickly, if you could, where can our listeners go to just keep abreast of, of this current case with baby Chanel? Sure. Um, everybody can head to our website. It's www.bringchanelhome.com. There you can learn about um, the story. We have a timeline, and then we also have a Facebook page, Bring Chanel Home, and a TikTok page, Bring Chanel Home. Okay. And Bossy, how about you? Quickly, where can we learn more? I have a TikTok called Inupia Potato that anyone can visit. It has a whole playlist on there that from the very beginning that you can click on and watch. Wonderful. Okay. Well, folks, we have now reached the end of our hour. I would like to thank all of our guests today, Antonia Komak, Bossy Opsel, Simona Bearcub, Sydney Tarswell, and Matthew Fletcher. Hope you'll join us here on Native America Calling again tomorrow. We'll be taking a look at the next generation of Indigenous fire practitioners. Until then, stay safe. And enjoy the rest of your day. Support provided by Amerind. Amerind is 100% tribally owned and partners with tribes and their businesses to provide affordable commercial insurance coverage, protect tribal sovereignty, and strengthen Native American communities by helping to keep dollars in Indian country. Information about property, liability, commercial auto, and workers' comp available at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Protector Louis Health and Wellness, Ikayong Louis Family, Community Health and Care, Sli Lohafsi, Vaccine, RSV, Seasonal Flu, COVID 19 Booster Shot, available to Akubak, Abihirutakhausi, Vaccine, Indian Health Care Provider, Nakavisitor Louis, Vaccine.gov. Message from Center of Medicare and Medicaid Service. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico, 
by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.